At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Uh, I love these next verses. Come to me, all you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is life. light. That's the word of the Lord. Let's, uh, let's pray. Lord, as we gather as a church family this morning, I think of the words of Psalm 118, which say, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. We do rejoice in it and this fellowship you have created. Lord, we rejoice also in your word, which brings light and life to our souls. And so we ask that by your spirit, you bless John with knowledge and wisdom as he unpacks these verses for us and speak to each one of us as we open our hearts to you. And it's in the precious name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Thanks, Jack. You may have heard Jack read the text and go, that, that's a hard thing. And I'm imagining it a little bit this way, um, that if you've ever watched uh, boxing, they have one minute breaks between rounds. And so you're still in the fight, but it's like a little chill. We, we aren't pedaled to the metal every single time. Uh, next week's depart from me, I never knew you. And so I felt like I need some time for that one. So we'll do, yeah, hard-ish saying this week. So we're kind of in between rounds, but still in the fight. And there's a twin hard saying this week. Uh, and first, it is a revelation of who Jesus is and the economy of God's kingdom and an invitation that he gives. Again, I anticipated that this hard saying was going to be rest, and it's somewhat counterintuitive in that Jesus, uh, his offer of rest seems like such, who, who wouldn't want that? Yet it's so difficult to enter into because of how many of us are wired in simply the world that we live in. But as we dig deeper into the text, and you may have seen it, uh, to get to that invitation to rest, we first see a prayer and further revealing of Jesus that goes, wait, what? All to whom Jesus chooses, what's that all about? So we'll get into it. Matthew chapter 11 is similar uh, to Luke 9 in which we were there, I don't know, two weeks ago or so, where Jesus is yet again rejected uh, by a variety of towns and people, and that shapes the instruction that he's giving. If you were to read all of Matthew 11, uh, Jesus gives these woes out to Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum, and he says judgment is coming. And then from there, right before this, he, he breaks into a prayer and gives this gratitude to God for the seeming lack of success that he is experiencing, which gives us 
a little bit of an insight into the mystery of the kingdom of God. It's interesting because Jesus was just rejected by all these towns and it's like, thanks God, but not sarcastic in the way that I just gave it or would feel that way. Many of us like, thanks Lord, you, that stunk. It's not that way. There's this un, unending gratitude that seems to come out of Christ and then he gives this teaching that is central to Matthew's gospel account that entrance into God's kingdom is that of becoming like a child. We see the heart of God who is revealing through Jesus that the prideful don't get it. Those who he says are wise in understanding and you sense a bit of uh, maybe sharpness to those words. That, that God's kingdom has been hidden from those who are wise in understanding. That is those who are, are prideful and arrogant, seemingly wise, seemingly brilliant, but it's been revealed to children, both literally and figuratively, those who are humble in heart. And then he says, and gives this teaching, that through the Father, he has gifted the Son, revealed the Son, the Son reveals the Father, the Father reveals the Son, and understanding that one must become like a little child. If you were with us at all during our year that we spent in Matthew's Gospel, you know that our favorite commentator was Dale Bruner, and so to teach anything about Matthew, you have to quote good old Dale Bruner, who's getting up to, I don't know, close to 90 years old. He says that the heart of the revelation, speaking of Matthew 11, is this simple fact. God's whole truth, absolutely everything, has been placed in and revealed through Jesus the Son. The key to divine revelation is Jesus. In Jesus, God gets a face. Jesus invites us to himself, and we feel quite naturally that we are invited to God. So here is somewhat of the first beautiful, difficult, simple, mysterious, hard sayings of this text, is that if you want to know what God is like, you have to look at Jesus. And that's difficult because we live in somewhat of a wishy-washy world where there are a variety of options and opinions of who God is and what God's like. And what Jesus is saying exclusively is that if you want to know what God is like, you have to look at him. Which is an audacious claim for anybody to say. But Jesus is saying, if you want to see what God is like, you have to look at the Son of God. The writer of Hebrews, which we're getting into after Easter, maybe a little uh, a taster right here, opening of Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 through 4. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he inherited uh, is more excellent than theirs. And so in the time when Matthew wrote his gospel account, there was a variety of opinions and thoughts on God, and there was temples and idols and worship just as there is today, but one consistent theme remains, and that is if you want to see and know fully and exactly who God is and what he's like, you need to see and be 
with and listen to Jesus. But then, if you dig even further into these verses, there's something that becomes even more hotly contested and debated about. And I don't know if you noticed it. It is found in verse 27. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and we're all good. And then, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. You go, huh? Uh Uh-oh. And throughout the last mm, 2,000-ish years, that verse and context around those verses have been hotly debated. Anyone whom the Son chooses, the Son chooses. So if the Son chooses to reveal some, does that mean the Son's sending others or choosing to not reveal himself to others? And off we go into the debates of God's election and predestination and free will and choice and all of that. Now, there is a spectrum, is how I see it and understand it, of opinions on God's sovereignty and election and predestination and free will and choice and how those two seemingly um, opposite things are connected together. And as we get into it, just to either help or not before, I'm not going to solve the debate at all. The debate hasn't been solved. I'm not attempting to. I, I haven't discovered a, a silver bullet or a magic key or some super keen insight in it. As, as I was digging into this and reading a variety of opinions on it all, I just go, this is like a seesaw where two people are on the opposite side just trying to like buck each other off with competing verses. Well, there's this verse. And they're like holding on, they're like, yeah, but have you read this verse? And boom, and it's like, what I'm hoping is as a church we can like see eye to eye in one another in the Bible as a whole. I am not attempting to take scripture in this verse and turn it into a bludgeon to convince anybody about anything. So the debates are this. How do you hold the fact that there's verses where God predestines and elects people and people have a choice and a responsibility in their own volition and will. That's the debate. And people land on one side or the other, typically. And I'm not attempting this morning to convince you to go to or be on either side. I'm saying this is what the debate is. Does God predestine and elect? And does that mean that? That's what the debates are. I I think what's more important is to look a little bit underneath it. Not what the debate is, but why the debate is. And I think personal opinion, and this is me looking at the mirror, and also the circular conversations I've had multiple times with many people over the years, is this, the why of the debates is us as finite people trying to, uh, in an unhealthy way, control. The healthy side is trying to comprehend. The unhealthy side is we're attempting to control a mystery. A a mystery that doesn't have a a clean-cut resolution at all. 
there's a good desire, again, to comprehend, to know, to grasp, to understand God's word, God's story, God's heart, all of those things. But I think what often happens, and maybe my, I don't think my experience is totally unique, that when it turns into a debate, it's no longer about comprehending, it's attempting to control the mysteries of God and people's belief systems. And has anybody ever had that go well? Have you, where you're like, I'm going to convince this person of the sovereignty of God and that free will's a joke? No. Or, or if you land more towards the, the choice and, and free will side of things, you're like, I'm gonna, oh gosh, I'm going to convince that person that believes strongly in the five points of Calvinism and the sovereignty of God. I'm going to show them the verses. It's like slamming your head into a brick wall. It's not going to go well. And you go, well, well, then what is it? What's it going to be? Here's what I think this text reveals. Is that humans, though created good in the image of God, we collectively, historically, universally have a bent and broken tendency towards sin. This is the story of scripture. That we naturally, apart from Jesus, do not listen, see, or savor Christ. That we, from our hearts, Reject him. And the Bible uses a lot of metaphors to describe the three-letter word sin. It talks about sin being a stain, a debt, a slavery, death, blindness, a burden. One of my favorite illustrations is in C.S. Lewis's Space Trilogy where he talks about there being bent ones, that there's this natural inclination in bending away from God's heart God's word, God's way in the midst of the world. That's what sin is. Just like those towns in Israel, that there's a force within us and outside of us that would pull us away from what is good, true, and beautiful. And it takes a force outside of ourselves to see this and change us. And so there's good news baked within the story that God's heart is to rescue people from sin into a life of worship, into a life of truth, into a life of beauty, into a life of rest. And the good news is that God sends Jesus to do just that. Jesus comes to reveal God's heart for humanity, that people are broken due to sin. People cannot save themselves It takes a force outside of themselves that the scriptures describe as grace. And Jesus reveals that. There's good news of a sending and saving God who comes to reveal his heart. And where I find the debates often break down is they rarely take a a verse or a scripture in context with the whole. So you go, well, what about what about this verse? God choosing. And you go, yeah, it's there. But guess what Jesus says right after the son chooses to reveal? Come to me all. And so there's this exclusivity of Jesus. He's the way, he's the truth, he's the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. If you want to know God, you got to look to Jesus. Nothing else is going to reveal God's heart like Jesus does. And he chooses, and you go, well, am I in or am I out? And he goes, come everyone, everyone who is heavy laden and is desiring rest. 
completely and directly connected to the revelation and exclusivity of Christ is this invitation for all the world to come to Jesus. Uh, 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon, they call him the Prince of Preachers, and uh, he had an illustration that uh, if God painted the elects back with a yellow stripe on the back of everybody, like that's the marker, you're elect, you get a yellow stripe. He said, and this was before everybody was canceling everybody, that he'd go around lifting shirts. And I was like, Charles, that's a bad idea. It's a really, really bad idea. You wrote it down, I'm quoting it, his idea, not mine. He says, but God didn't do that. And so he says he preaches whoever, whosoever, John 3, 16, whosoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. So he says, if there was a yellow stripe, I'd lift shirts and check, but since there isn't, I preach whosoever, and then whosoever believes is the elect. If whosoever believes, then I know, I see, I believe that person is elect. And again, as I said earlier, uh, I'm not attempting to solve any debate, but what my hope is for myself and perhaps you is that any conversation and contemplation about the exclusivity of Jesus, the sovereignty of God, the predestination of people is coupled with this and all the invitations of Jesus that are universal and, and all-encompassing to the world. And in that, there is a difficult but sweet embrace of mystery of God's God, I'm not, and I think that's actually a really good thing. That if I cannot comprehend everything about God, that means I'm not God, I'm human. And to admit that, at times, is a difficult task. To go, I don't know it all. I don't understand it all. But God does, and what he has revealed is clear. And again, that is, Jesus is the way, he's the truth, he's the life. The only way to understand God truly is through Jesus. And Jesus invites every single soul to come and experience, and experience life and rest and salvation in him. And that's his invitation. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. And his promise there is rest. Now, why is this invitation hard? Because, again, it's against our tendency in the spirit of our age. Uh, the great theologian Bill Gates, he says this, just in terms of allocation of time resources, religion is not very efficient. There's a lot more I could be doing on Sunday morning. Yes, he's right. But also it's not a full understanding of what Jesus is here to offer. And this brings us back to the necessity to enter in and remain in the kingdom of God as kids. Because rest, paradoxically, comes through Jesus' yoking ourselves to him. Again, Bruner, long quote, helpful. A yoke is a work instrument. Thus, when Jesus offers a yoke, he offers what we might think tired workers need least. They need a mattress or a vacation, not a yoke. Still more precisely, a yoke is not a sitting instrument. It is a walking instrument. Jesus does not say, take my chair and learn from me. He says, take my yoke and learn from me, which means that as we seek to live in obedience to Jesus, we learn from Jesus along the way. Jesus realizes that the most restful gift he can give the tired is a new way to carry life, 
a fresh way to bear responsibilities. Life is a succession of burdens. We cannot get away from them. Thus, instead of offering escape, Jesus offers equipment. Jesus offers us a new way in which we see and experience and deal with the world we find ourselves in. In the grace that we find, there is his heart for tired, weary, broken people, is that he's gentle and lowly. He's, he's meek and he's understanding. If you want a wonderful book on it, Gentle and Lowly, I have a quote. I'm not going to read it. I'm semi-sort of running out of time. Wonderful book that goes into these very verses in depth. It's a bestseller, really, really helpful, by one of the Ortlands. Was it Dane? Dane, yes. Dane Ortland. There's Dane, there's Gavin. All, all of Ray Ortland's sons are like pastors and theologians. But anyways, look at it. What we find, burdened, broken, weary people in coming to Jesus is he promises rest as we learn his way. He doesn't say once you have it all together, come to him. He says if you're worn out, you're desperate, come to him. In our modern day and age, this is uh, steps one, two, and three of AA all put together. Step one, we've admitted we are powerless over alcohol, that our lives have become unmanageable, tired, weary, broken, burdened. We came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. And in the Christian story, his name is Jesus. Made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. And what do we find there in Matthew 11? That God gives us rest. And so how we learn the heart of God and the way of Jesus is not simply by accumulating more knowledge about him, finding more factoids about God. He leads us to learn his way in the trenches of real life. Not necessarily in a classroom, the classrooms are good and helpful, but, but in the midst of everyday life. Christianity isn't simply about trying harder. It's about training under the authority of Jesus. So often, in, in, as I look through my, my childhood, a lot of my own story has been trying harder. I'm going to do better. I'm not going to sin like that again. I promise, I promise, I promise. And what I have slowly, slowly and stubbornly learned is that Jesus isn't seeking better performance out of old Johnny Wolfinger here. But he's asking for surrender. He's, he's looking to show me how to learn his way in the midst of everyday life. And you and I, we don't need more facts about God in this information-heavy age. I mean, I, I get it. We, shoot, we have four or five new books for you to read back there. Like, take your pick. I, I love reading. I love information. All of that. But, but there is no silver bullet for your life. And that's really, really good news. Because all Jesus is asking is to come alongside him, take his yoke, his way, that instrument upon you, and learn his way in 
everyday life. And what you find is that life with Jesus isn't automatic, but it's this enacted thing that happens and unfolds day by day. As we see Jesus revealed, we then take him up on his invitation and train in the trenches of life, which is one of the most beautifully simple and difficult things we'll ever do. John Mark Comer in his book, Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, says this, an easy life isn't an option, but an easy yoke is. And it's available now for us. As I was beginning to prep this sermon, uh, I was heading down to lunch with Mike Gaston, one of our elders, and I had this thought of, huh, Mike's talked about Sabbath. Some people have wanted to know more about Sabbath. One of the ways we experience the rest of God is through Sabbath. And so I said, hey, Mike, you want to teach kind of sort of halvesies on that Sunday? And he went, sure. So without further ado, to talk more about rest, uh, Mike Gaston. I can tell you that was one of the easiest yeses I've given in a long time because what John is doing is inviting me to invite all of us to what Bill Gates describes as a terribly inefficient lifestyle. And I'm okay with that. I'm okay with living a life and enjoying rest in ways that appear from the outside to look wasteful, to look inefficient, because I think it's one of the best ways to apply what John's been talking about for the last few minutes. So for me to get a chance to kind of do the second half of this sermon, second one-third maybe, because John went long, <laughs> so the second, the last one-third, will, will give me a chance to share with you folks what I've mentioned up front here a few times already. It's very much a part of my wife's and my ministry and life day-to-day -day, this very week, uh, as a matter of fact, and I'll get to you in, in a minute. But I, I, I want to I talk about a very realistic question that comes to mind when you hear this amazing command slash promise of Jesus. Because it is both. It's a command, come to me, imperative. It's a promise, I will give you rest. So the question that pops to mind is, when do we get that rest? When's the payday? When am I going to step into the fun stuff that you've invited me to come to you to get, Jesus? And for a lot of folks, that is something that will happen one day, especially when we all get to heaven. Okay, the old hymn, right? When we all get to heaven, what a day. No, I won't sing anymore. But it's one of those treasures, one of those prizes that are waiting for us one day. For, for decades, that's how I understood this promise. That if I do the hard stuff now and wade through the yuck now, then, when I get to heaven, that rest will be there. And when we have people who are faithful to Jesus pass away, we often use the phrase, they've entered their heavenly what? Rest. So it's kind of baked into how we view this promise. But it's worth asking the question, is it only then? Is that the only payday? Is that when we're supposed to receive the rest he's promising here? Or... Might Jesus be offering a better life than that? Now, here, as the Lord's Prayer says, on earth as it is in heaven. If rest will be our experience when we get to heaven one day, would not God want it to be at least part of our experience here on earth today, on earth as it is in heaven? Twelve years ago, my wife and I changed our minds about this promise. And we concluded, after some reading and some study, that that rest is for now, it is for our present life, 
And in fact, that in this passage, we believe Jesus is talking about a very specific kind of rest, a kind of rest that was very familiar to his audience and to the original readers of Matthew's gospel, a rest that the Old Testament calls the Sabbath. That Sabbath rest was built into the life of Israel. You read all about it in the Old Testament. If you have Jewish friends, you might know some Sabbath observant people right now. And if it's meant to be for now, and if, it's, if it's, Sabbath is, is what Jesus is describing, that has pretty severe implications. So I want to first, I want to convince you that Jesus is referring not just to generic rest. He's not talking about a nap. He's talking about Sabbath rest here. I, I want to convince you in a couple of ways. One, I, I want to read Jeremiah 6.16 to you. And I want you to notice there's something in this verse that will be familiar after Matthew 11. Jeremiah 6.16 says this. Thus says the Lord, this is God talking to Israel through the prophet Jeremiah, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. The bad news is the last phrase, Israel refused that gift. But the good news is, is earlier on. And if you recognize that find rest for your souls, guess what? In Matthew 11, Jesus was quoting Jeremiah 6.16. His audience would have known that, and they would have flashed to what's preceding. Ask about the ancient paths where the good way is, the ancient practices God had given to Israel generations earlier. Sabbath rest was one of those practices, one of those traditions that were built into the old covenant between God and Israel. One day a week, you will rest. You will not work. So Jesus is making vague reference to Jeremiah 6.16 here, which is, makes me think he's got Sabbath in his mind. But there's another reason we believe that. In uh, the very next passage after Matthew 11, we jump right into Matthew 12. And I hope you realize that the chapter breaks in our Bibles were not there in the original writings. Okay. It was just a, it was a letter. In Paul's case, it was a book. In some cases, like Matthew, there were no chapters, there were no verses. One thought led into another. And sometimes the chapter breaks that were put in generations after this was composed happen in unfortunate places. And I think this is one of those unfortunate chapter breaks. Because we read, we end at 11, and in some reading, you might not even get back to chapter 12 for a couple of days or longer if you're reading through. And you might forget. But if you remove the chapter break, you realize Jesus says, I will give you rest. And right away, Matthew tells two stories in Matthew chapter 12. Both stories of conflict over Sabbath, where Jesus was accused of not being serious enough about rest. That his disciples were plucking grain on, on the Sabbath day. And Jesus dared to heal a guy on the Sabbath day. That's work. You can't do that, Jesus. And he got in trouble constantly with the rule keepers of his day. Because he seemed to be a Sabbath breaker. He wasn't resting the way they were supposed to at that time. And in the midst of those two conflicts in Matthew 12, we find the phrase, in fact, uh, in, in Matthew 12, verse... I lost my place in my notes... There it is, verse 8. Jesus, in defending the disciples for plucking grain as they walk through a field, he says, the Son of Man, that's me, Jesus says, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. I'm in charge of this, guys. I invented this. <laughs> You're telling the author of Sabbath how he should practice Sabbath. Listen to yourselves for a minute. He's basically saying, I'm doing Sabbath the way it should be done. And I think as the Holy Spirit inspired Matthew to write this gospel in the way he did, 
that right on the heels of Jesus' promise of rest, Matthew is anticipating that the readers might be going, wait a minute, we're Jews, we know rest. We rest one day a week. We, we, we're Sabbath keepers. And it's as if the Holy Spirit is saying, you think you know Sabbath, but you don't. This offer of rest that Jesus mentioned, yes, it's, Sabbath is included in that, and you guys have messed it up. You guys have made it about rules and regulations and, and don'ts and thou shalt nots. That's not what it's supposed to be. So, if I'm right, and if Matthew 11, Jesus' picture of rest, at least includes the idea of Sabbath rest, a regular t- part of time set aside to put work aside and get refreshed. If that is true, it's pretty significant. Because what that means is, in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, we use the phrase Old Covenant and New Covenant, God wants his people to be known for their ability to rest. That in a busy, crazy, stressful world, for the Israelites and for Christians up to today, God wants his people to be known in the world around us as restful people. God wants people to be able to look at us today and say, man, nobody knows how to rest like those Christians do. If that's true, and I think it is, the question comes to mind, how are we doing? Is that our reputation? Is that what people see when they look at us? Or do they see people just as caught up in the, in the, in the busyness, in the stressfulness, in the craziness, and what I call the hamster wheel of life? That the more you run, the faster it spins, but you don't always get anywhere? If rest is not what comes to mind when people look at us, if rest is not what comes to mind when we look at our own lives, then the answer to how we're doing is maybe not very well. In fact, I'll go this far. Twelve years ago, as my wife and I began researching and and considering this gift of rest, I came to realize that of all the commands of Jesus, this is the only one in Matthew 11, the only one of his commands I've ever bragged about breaking. Let me say that again. I have bragged about breaking this command, and it's the only one I've bragged about. It's not the only one I've broken, (laughs) okay? But I don't brag about the other sins. Who brags about how proud they are? Who brags about, oh, I got so angry yesterday, it was great. My lust is out of control. I, I just, I just, I, who, who does that? We don't brag about things we know are wrong and sinful, but I have bragged that I'm too busy to rest. Because if I'm busy, that means I'm important. I'm significant. People need me. I've got so much to do, I can't sit down. Because that means, look at me. I've done that, and I'm committed to not doing it anymore. And that's why 12 years ago, we became what we call diligent pursuers of God's gift of Sabbath rest. We stepped into a a movement that it wasn't new for us. We didn't found it. We, We discovered it. It was actually started by Eugene Peterson, who's very much a friend of Union Church. (laughs) You quote him quite a bit. Uh, He wrote an article in Christianity Today in 1988. Uh, So old, all I found was a scan of a photocopy of the article. (laughs) This is positively prehistoric, digitally speaking, right? 
he, he wrote this article. It's a four-page article. I'm not going to read the whole thing, obviously. But in it, he became among the first Christian proponents of the idea that maybe Sabbath isn't just a dusty relic of the Old Testament. That maybe Sabbath has something for Christians. Maybe Sabbath can be part of our lives. And maybe God, when Jesus said, I will give you rest, he does mean now, and he does mean regularly. So he wrote Confessions of a Sabbath Breaker. And in it, he quoted a letter he'd written to his church. And I'm going to read just a portion of that letter. Uh, as he became himself Sabbath observant intentionally, and he invited his congregation to do the same. Here's what he wrote. Odd, isn't it? We have more leisure hours per person per year as a country than anyone could have guessed a hundred years ago. But we are not leisurely. We are not relaxed or anxious. We're in a hurry. The anxiety and the hurry ruin intimacy and sabotage our best intentions in faith, hope, and love. The three actions in which most of us set out to do our best. That's why I, as your pastor, want you to keep a Sabbath. I want you to live well, and I want you to live whole and mature with appreciation and pleasure, experiencing the heights and depths of glory in your bodies and your work, your friends and your gardens, your minds and your emotions at the ocean and the mountains. You can't do that if you're on the run. You can't do that if you're watching the clock. Sabbath is the biblical tool for protecting time against desecration. He started a bit of a wildfire among some Christian theologians and Christian pastors as, as folks began to ask the question, is there something here for us? We were first exposed to this idea, my wife and I, in 2008. I tried to put it into practice in my life, and it crashed and burned. It was a train wreck. It didn't work. It didn't stick. So in 2011, I had a second shot, and I thought, I might not get a third, so I'm going to make this one count. And my wife and I embraced it, and we now have become Sabbath observant for the last 12 years. On an almost weekly basis, we set aside time, intentional for rest. Here's our definition of Sabbath. It's regular, intentional, contemplative, Christ-centered rest. Each one of those words matter. I don't have time to unpack them all, but would love to some other time, maybe face-to-face. -face. What we've learned is, uh, and the books we're offering you will back this up, there's lots of freedom of when to, to uh, practice Sabbath. Uh, for reasons that I won't explain now, I believe Sabbath is portable, is the word I use. It can go where you want to put it. It fits where it goes in your schedule. It's not a rigid Friday sundown to Saturday sundown as the Israelites experienced. Lots of freedom in when to do it. Uh, the last two weeks, Friday was my Sabbath, uh, and, it was, and it worked well. There's lots of freedom in how to do it. How do you rest? What do you put aside, and what do you bring into your life in your restful moments? That's a fantastic question, and it's fun to explore. My wife and I land in very different places on that how-to question. Uh, she's more disciplined than I am, so she can Sabbath at home. Uh, I, I cannot turn off all the distractions. <laughs> My dog is there, the, the, the desk is there, the list of things to do is there, the TV is there. Everything is there that keeps tugging on me. i got to get out of the house. And so I, I, I go for hikes. I go for walks. I'm walking with my father in some of the most beautiful stuff he's created. 
And northern Arizona is a fantastic place to do that. <laughs> I love my Sabbath hikes, is what I call it. But there's all kinds of ways to rest. But the key is there's some things you set aside and some things you bring in. You basically set aside your list of things to do. One of the books we've offered you, the author says, your Sabbath day is the one day of the week when what you must do is not do that which you must let that settle a little bit. <laughs> the only thing you must do is to not do that which you must. It's not the day for your list of things to do. It's not the day to check off a couple more things so tomorrow's easier. It's the day to ruthlessly set that aside and say, no, today is for the day of things I get to do, not things I have to do. And that get to do list can include quite a bit. So there's lots of freedom when to do it, lots of freedom how to do it, the bottom line is just to do it, and to explore it, and to experiment with it, and to delight in it. Because I, I, I knew within weeks of starting this, I'll call it a discipline, I don't like that word much, because it implies you've got to grit your teeth and make yourself do it, because I'm going to discipline myself to do this, because I don't want to, but I'm going to. Okay, I'll call Sabbath a discipline, but it's one thing, I, it's the first one in my life I couldn't wait to do once I learned the benefits of it. I get to Sabbath again next week. What am I going to do? What am I going to add? Where am I going to go? What am I going to see? There's all kinds of things you can add to that Sabbath experience. Much of our ministry these days, my wife and I, involves urging Christians, especially Christian workers, to learn how to rest. Because when we began Sabbathing, that was one of our first thoughts, my first thought. I wish I knew how to rest when I was living as a missionary. I wish I'd learned this sooner. I wish I knew how to rest when our kids were in the house so I could show them and include them. I, I, I wish I could have modeled this for the next generation. Oh, well, I'll, I'll enjoy it, but man, I wish, I wish, I wish. So we've scheduled our lives these days to encourage others to consider this and to explore it and to delight in it. We're seeing incredible eagerness from people. Just this week, on Wednesday, we Zoomed with a, a couple from Kenya who was with us in January and discovered this idea of regular, intentional, contemplative, Christ-centered rest. It just resonated with them. Uh, they're students at Fuller Seminary, and he oversees church planting in Kenya. They got so excited, they asked my wife and me to mentor them once a month on Zoom till they could come back and stay in our home longer so they can eventually practice this and take it to the Christian workers they oversee in Kenya. This last Wednesday, we talked about even me going to Kenya in 2025 and bring a workshop on Sabbath to the people they oversee. That's the kind of enthusiasm we're getting as people we introduce to Sabbath say, is this really okay? Is this allowed? Can I be this non-productive for a day? And it's good news when you find out it can. So we want to give you some resources today. We don't want to leave you just dangling, oh, what is it all, how, how do you do it? There's a few that are available. First, I started blogging about Sabbath about six months after I started practicing Sabbath. And my blog is called Sabbath Thoughts. It's a little bit uh, dormant. There's no new posts for over a year, but there are over 80 posts there. Some of them are, are advocating for people to consider Sabbath. Others are uh, just a place to, an outlet for things God teaches me as I'm resting. And Sabbathing. If you'd like to browse that and get some ideas and hopefully some inspiration, you're welcome to. 
Uh, it's, if you blog my name, Mike Gaston, and Sabbath Thoughts, it pops right up on, on Google. So shouldn't be hard to find, but let me know if you have trouble. As John mentioned, we've also got resources in the back. Uh, Ruthless Elimination of Hurry by John Mark Comer and The Rest of God by Mark Buchanan. The Rest of God is the one that moved me toward Sabbath. And it was, is, I've, I've read it three times now, and I don't read books twice. So that tells you how much I enjoyed that. Uh, and then, in 15 minutes, we're not getting very deep, obviously. Um, I've led workshops on Sabbath uh, in a variety of different places. Next fall, I'll be leading a workshop on Sabbath as one of our Wednesday night teaching series uh, here at Union. So uh, we don't have any dates yet. We'll let you know as it comes, but that is in the future. Well, we get to take more time and dig a little deeper and see what God might do if we take Jesus seriously when he says, I will give you rest and say, Lord, I want that. How do I do it? This workshop will be perfect. These books will be helpful. Uh, if you don't want to wait till next fall, let's have coffee. <laughs> let's chat. Glad to help you explore. But let me close with this quote from Mark Buchanan. He says this, The rest of God, the rest God gladly gives so that we might discover that part of God that we're missing, is not a reward for finishing. It's not a bonus for work well done. It's sheer gift. It's a stop work order in the midst of work that's never complete, never polished. Sabbath is not the break we're allotted at the tail end of completing all of our tasks and chores, the fulfillment of all of our obligations. It's the rest we take smack dab in the middle of them, without apology, without guilt, and for no better reason than God told us we could. Does that resonate with you? I hope so. Let me pray, and we'll see what God does as we move forward toward rest. Lord, thank you for this command and this promise. Thank you for being a God of rest. Forgive us for not resting in ways that glorify you and show how complete your work is. Forgive us for taking things in our own hands and feeling like we're the indispensable ones when really you are. You know, teach us how to rest and teach us how to glorify you through that rest. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.